Hi everyone, welcome to the Katie Helper Show. Sorry I've been a little behind. There's a lot going on in the world right now. And don't worry, I'll be giving you some hot off the presses interviews. Some more coming down the pike soon. Um, stand by for an interview with David Sirota, an interview with Brianna Joy Gray, Anya Parampel, Asad Hader. And right now, you are going to really enjoy this interview, I'm sure. Everyone loves interviews with this guy. His name is Max Blumenthal. He's a editor, contributor, and founder of The Gray Zone. And he's going to talk to us about a really great piece that he just wrote. And of course, to support The Katie Helper Show, you can become a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash The Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash The Katie Helper Show. If you donate $5 a month, you get bonus content, extra interviews, extended interviews. But if you just want to support the show for a dollar a month, you just get to really feel great about yourself. Um, Because of what's happening in the economy, I've been releasing everything um, in front of the paywall and really hoping that people who can afford to keep subscribing do so. I just don't want to really penalize people, given what's happening right now. So, anyone who can support the show, patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show, and you can, again, just do a dollar a month and it adds up. Then I can keep making these episodes and keep putting them in front, not behind, of any paywall. Thanks. Really excited to be talking to Max Blumenthal, great journalist. He's the founder of the Gray Zone, and it's always a great time talking to Max, and it's always a great time getting a lot of crap after talking to Max. So welcome, Max. Good to see you. I haven't been canceled yet for having me on. I know. Yeah. Well, give us some time. I'm really uh, busy right now because I have uh, interview requests from the New York Times and the Washington Post. Uh, Chris Hayes is having me on because, you know, he's shocked that the CIA was carrying out this global criminal spying ring on Julian Assange. So I'm going to have to right. cut this short. Run off to MSNBC? Yeah, I got a car waiting outside to take me to 30 Rock. Then uh, me and me and Chris are me and Chris are going to go out with David Frum for some skewers and uh, party poppers. Isn't David Frum in Washington D.C.? Yeah. Okay, you're going to pick him. We're up. actually not going out. We're not allowed to really interact with other humans, but but for the coronavirus, you'd be chilling with David Frum. Yeah, I mean, I would probably, you know go to jail for a real crime in that case. Tell us about this article that you wrote. It's really good. It's really long. It's really espionage. It has like a John le Carre vibe to it. Can you summarize it? I just want people to have a basic idea of the contours of the article, if you will. Yeah. um, I mean, this this is a complex story. And for that reason, it hasn't really broken through in the U.S. Um, Parts of it have been reported in bits and pieces in Spanish language media. And it's all coming out because of a Spanish court case. But basically, the U.S. government, but particularly the Trump administration under Mike Pompeo's CIA, identified Julian Assange and WikiLeaks as one of its top national security targets and threats. Julian Assange had been in the embassy of the Ecuadorian government in London since 2012. He was given legal sanctuary there, according to international law. And the U.S. wanted his arrest. And, you know, Democrats wanted to burn him alive after the DNC email server was supposedly hacked and WikiLeaks published the emails showing just, you know, rigging and corruption and, you know, everything we knew was true. So basically, the CIA under Mike Pompeo relied apparently on a Spanish security contractor called UC Global, David Morales is the head of UC Global, which had a contract through Las Vegas Sands, which is the company of Sheldon Adelson, the ultra-Zionist billionaire, casino baron, and mega donor to the Republican Party, and specifically to Trump. Troll, very and that con- troll, awesome. Right. Uh, and you know, he's someone who's like a hologram projected from the imagination of a deranged anti-Semite. He's like a walking anti-Semitic stereotype. It's like, you know, Anyway, yeah, he's a, a, owns casinos, very, very rich, obsessed with Israel, really does not do our people any favors. Exactly. And, uh, you know, he doesn't fund marijuana legalization like George right. Soros, which, you know, gives him like a kind of a, a soft side. But anyway, 
Uh, Adelson basically through Las Vegas Sands provides the cover for what was a CIA operation and his security team, uh, which includes someone who is, you know, a former assistant director of the Secret Service in the U.S., who is an expert on cybercrime, hacking, and those kinds of things, and a um, Israeli American named Zohar Lahav. They managed this operation, and the operation took the form of illegal spying on Julian Assange and his lawyers, on journalists, including mainstream American journalists, as well as people you and I know. People had their um, phones hacked into. Pamela Anderson, who is a friend of Julian Assange, had her email password, her Gmail password stolen, which means they probably got into her emails. Um, worse things took place. Uh, it appears that robberies took place. Robberies were proposed. Assassinations were proposed, as well as the kidnapping of Assange. People were followed to their homes. People were surveilled in their homes, including... Um, the lawyer of Julian Assange, Baltasar Garzon, the former president of Ecuador was surveilled constantly, Rafael Correa. Ecuadorian diplomats were surveilled, all under the watch of Mike Pompeo. It's a gigantic criminal operation being carried out around the globe. And what I've revealed here that no one else has revealed is the names of the people working at Las Vegas Sands under the watch of Sheldon Adelson who were managing this on a day-to-day -day basis, like Zohar Lahav, who I mentioned before, he's the person who recruited David Morales for this operation. So you take this whole story, you read it, it's 6,800 words. You know, when I was unpacking these documents, uh, which came out of the Spanish court, it did feel like I was reading a spy novel. I mean, it was shocking, the level of intrigue as well as subterfuge and just straight up criminality. David Morales, is the head of UC Global, the Spanish security contractor that was basically doing the dirty work on behalf of the CIA. He got this contract through Sheldon Adelson's Las Vegas Sands to guard the Queen Mary, which is Adelson's $70 million yacht. And Named after his wife, Miriam. Exactly. Miriam Adelson helps run his political empire, and she is an Israeli. Adelson, you know, first of all, he only has two interests in the world. He's not a complex guy. His number one interest is expanding his casino and financial empire. And his second interest is expanding Israel on top of the heads of Palestinians, like just burying Palestinians in gigantic settlement blocks packed with, you know, fanatical Zionists. He doesn't really care about Julian Assange. And the second thing to note is that his yacht was already secured by a 24-7 security team of experienced security professionals. So he didn't need David Morales. He was obviously cover for something else. And Morales, he was recruited at a, a security fair in Las Vegas by Lahav, who became his friend. This is the vice president of security for Sheldon Adelson. In 2016, Trump becomes president, enters the White House in January 2017, along with Mike Pompeo. Mike Pompeo identifies the uh, WikiLeaks as a hostile foreign intelligence agency in his first speech as CIA director and basically says that, you know, we're going to take countermeasures against them and that free speech doesn't matter anymore. This was, you know, Pompeo's at the top of his agenda. Pompeo is another close Sheldon Adelson ally. Right, because he's a Christian so, Zionist, right? Christian Zionist. Yeah, huge, huge Zionist. Um, you know, all, all of the brinksmanship with Iran, the fact that the U.S. had a military confrontation with Iran. That is the work of Pompeo and Netanyahu with Adelson as the sort of middleman between the two of them. Don't let so, the Italian last name fool you. There are Italian evangelicals, which I didn't know until very recently. Oh, yeah. I've met some of them in Jerusalem. I mean, it's just a magnet for crazies. I mean, if you've ever heard an Italian speak in tongues, it's magnificent. But wow. That sounds amazing. Yeah, it's a really amazing. It's like opera with Pentecostal opera. Nice. So David Morales comes back from this security fair and starts bragging to his company and his business partners and employees, we're playing in the first division now. He'd been small time before. Football All reference. He had football reference, right. Yeah. Uh, uh, European or international football, right. not American. The only thing he had, the only contract he had was to guard the Ecuadorian embassy in London. And it was just by chance that he had this contract and, and Assange was there. 
And that's why he was recruited. They're like, this guy, he controls the cameras. He controls everything. He can take down Assange. So that was his entree into the big leagues of the mercenary world. And Morales had told his employees, I'm a mercenary. He, he couldn't care less about Assange either. What he wanted was to be the next Eric Prince and to have this global army for hire. And he could get that through the Trump administration. So this whole operation kicks into high gear as soon as Mike Pompeo comes into the CIA with Morales you know, swapping out the standard CCTV cameras in the embassy with cameras equipped with mics, uh, then getting instructions while he was actually staying at the Venetian in Las Vegas uh, by an obvious experienced professional on how to create a separate feed for those cameras so that the Americans, the, those he referred to as the American friends, would be able to control the cameras and upload the footage of Assange having these sensitive conversations with his lawyers. And the Ecuadorians, who thought that you know Morales was just there to provide security, wouldn't even know. Um, it was he was deceiving them. So the the employees were being asked to do things that they never considered doing as part of uh, their job. For example, one um, IT director was asked to fish the uh, diaper of a woman who was Assange's lawyer and who was repeatedly visiting Assange, constantly visiting him, and her visits would be preceded by a friend of Julian Assange bringing a baby. So they correctly suspected the baby belonged to Assange and that she was the mother of the child. Her name is Stella Morris. I'm Stella Morris. I am Julian Assange's partner. I met him in 2011. We got together in 2015. And she's, you know, since come forward and said that, you know, this really heartfelt testimonial that she was the mother of his two children. And we have two children, Max and Gabriel. I had received an email from Jennifer Robinson. The case that she was involved in, which involved Julian Assange, needed more people. We fell in love and I, you know, I, this is a person that I've, I knew well by then. The person I know the most in this world and he's extraordinary. He's generous and he's very tender and loving. Forming a family was a deliberate decision to see, to kind of break down those walls around him and see life, imagine a life beyond that prison. While for many people it would seem insane to start a family in that context, for us it was the same thing to do. It was what keeps things real. And it does. It, it grounds grounds me and when Julian sees the children it gives him a lot of peace and nurturing and support and that's good and they're very happy children. So Morales was asking this worker to get the diaper out of the trash so they could test the feces to see if it matched the DNA of Julian Assange. It turned out that you can't do that with feces. Who thought of so, that? Who thought that you could? Well, apparently some idiot at the CIA because Morales was just following orders. I cannot um, believe that they're- And then he was handing orders down. I think that, yeah. Yeah, right. And you can't get DNA. So they had to try to get the baby's pacifier. And then the workers was like, this is insane. So he actually confronted Stella Morris outside the embassy and said, please stop bringing your kid here. They want like your, <laughs> your child's DNA. They're trying to steal, steal your kid's saliva now. Um, step up. And I knew there was some spying going on um, when I found out that, that my baby was targeted. Because a guard actually went up to me and told me that they were trying to steal the DNA. Um, I realized that I couldn't really protect my family. Even if I took all these steps, you know, more steps than most people to, uh, to try to preserve our privacy and our security and Julian's safety, ultimately, um, in a way, it was beyond my control. 
and that was very difficult to realize. I understood that the powers that were um, against Julian were ruthless and had no, there were no bounds to it because there's a lawlessness around it. And, you know, they were after my baby's DNA, but what else, you know, what else are they after? And that's partly why I feel now that I have to, I have to do this because I've taken so many steps for so many years and I feel like Julian's life might be coming to an end. It's been 10 years, nine years, no, 10 years of breaking someone down, of trying to destroy his life. And it's a well-known pattern, you know, whistleblowers. People who expose the powerful, they destroy them. And we know this when this happens. And somehow everyone has failed Julian. They've all failed Julian. They've taken every negative angle they have been able to. You can do that to anyone. You can destroy anyone like that. You just need to overanalyzing them. <sighs> You know, Julian Assange knew he was being spied on. Uh, he tried to use white noise machines. They would speak in the women's bathroom when he spoke to his lawyer and turn on the faucets. But they then planted a microphone, a magnetic microphone under the fire extinguisher. Uh, his guests were just getting everything stolen from them, including their own, you know, personal, their, their, their phone global ID numbers, their SIM card numbers, and then their phones were probably hacked into. Um, one lawyer, uh, one journalist who covered WikiLeaks frequently, Stefania Morizzi, who was at La, Re La Repubblica at the time, told me that calls from her editors stopped going through after her phone was opened by Morales and his team. So basically in t December 2017, at the time that Morales got those instructions when he was at the Venetian, the hotel owned by Sheldon Adelson in Las Vegas, um, Julian Assange and his, his team of lawyers and Ecuadorian diplomats were working on a plan to get him diplomatic immunity from a friendly country. And under the Vienna conventions, he would then be able to leave the embassy. It would be completely legal according to international law. So the Americans started freaking out. And that's when the security, the, the surveillance got really aggressive. It was at this point that the um, director of Ecuador's security services, which is called the Senayin, uh, Romy Vallejo, went to the embassy on December 20th to meet with Assange and his team to hash out the final details of the plan to leave the embassy. The next day, and I don't know if anyone's ever made this connection before, but the chronology is really significant. The next day in Virginia, U.S. federal prosecutors introduced a secret indictment of Julian Assange. What's more, the U.S. ambassador to Todd Chapman, to the U.S. ambassador to Ecuador, Todd Chapman, started running around warning people around Assange not to execute the plan. How did they know about it? People, nobody knew how Todd Chapman knew about this. So the plan was basically foiled. Uh, one of the Ecuadorian diplomats who was involved in the plan According to a source who was involved, you know, in, in this whole strategy from start to finish, told me that one of these Ecuadorian diplomats went back to Quito, got in a government car, and on, on the road, uh, masked gunmen pulled up to his car, pointed guns in his face on a motorcycle, and demanded his laptop, and drove off with his laptop, which contained all the details of the plan. This isn't the only kind of robbery that apparently is connected to this whole operation, but it shows you the level of criminality that took place under the watch of Mike Pompeo in order to arrest a publisher and basically destroy the First Amendment. I mean, if Julian Assange 
is indicted and extradited to the U.S., it will destroy journalism as we know it. Um, and so this is a this is just a classic First Amendment case. It's a case about whistleblowers. And what I've put together here in this invest investigation, which is just factual. I mean, it's well established through court documents, uh, testimony. I mean, I have the phone logs of David Morales. I have email company emails. Um, I have all the surveillance footage, the photographs of uh, phones that were stolen, all this stuff. It invalidates the indictment of Julian Assange itself because it shows gross criminal misconduct on the part of American intelligence and the contractors they relied on. And I think that this Spanish case, that's why this Spanish case is so important because there's a separate case going on in the UK on whether to extradite Assange to the US. And so can you talk about the Spanish case, um, what that is? And Garston, who is his lawyer, by the way, is very well known for, among other things, um, going after Franco's crimes in Spain. How, what is this case, the Spanish case, actually about? Yeah, I actually kind of got lost. I was trying to explain what the case is about, and I, I got sidetracked. But So the, the former employees, like the, the one who was supposed to fish the diaper out, for example, and a former business partner went to Assange's lawyers after Assange was arrested in April 2019 and said what we did was absolutely against all of our ethics and um, we, we broke our contract with the Ecuadorian security services. Um, our CEO basically is a straight up criminal. And so Assange's lawyers went to a Spanish judge who enacted a secret operation to arrest David Morales and get all the company files and also de-encrypt de Morales's phones. So Morales was arrested, I believe it was October 2019, it was fall 2019, and he has since uh, testified in court and he's been questioned by Assange's lawyers in court and all of this has sort of come out and I think it's one of the most remarkable revelations of uh, U.S. intelligence, uh, I mean, sub like just um, criminal U.S. intelligence activity abroad, including um, spying on many, many Americans, um, violating their constitutional rights. How did you get involved in this story? I mean, I know you can't reveal too many things in your sources, but how did you start working on this? And how long did it take you? And what can you share about your process? You know, the documents were given to me by someone who's close to the case. And um, then I conducted interviews on my own and did a lot of re research. Um, and this is part of an ongoing larger investigation I'm doing um, that really combines just um, synthesizing material in these court documents with shoe leather. So this part of the investigation took me about a month. Wow. Um, and as I said, you know, it's been reported in bits and pieces. For example, the story about the dirty diaper was reported by El Pais. But what I introduce here really are the, the gritty details about the participation of Las Vegas Sands and Sheldon Adelson. And another point that's important to make um, is that Adelson has this, – this really isn't the first time Adelson Sands has served as a front for the CIA – there was a um, private intelligence report, and I have it, um, that was classified at the time, produced by the gambling industry in 2010. Um, and it was about what was taking place at Las Vegas Sands in Macau, which is part of Chinese, it's in Chinese territory. It's in the People's Republic of China. Basically, according to this intelligence report, the FBI and CIA were sending agents into the casino to spy on Chinese officials who were spending lots of money there. This was, you know, technically public money they were gambling away. And then they would be approached and told, you know, we have you on camera just blowing camera. money. It's really, yeah, you're, you're busted. Um, we'll go public with this if you don't inform on the Chinese government for us. So that it was a classic blackmail operation trying to induce Chinese officials into becoming US government informants. It was revealed in 2015, um, I think by The Guardian, 
but no one's connected it to this case in, until this point. And, uh, you know, it shows a clear pattern. So in, in, this took place in 2010, two years before a person named Brian Nagel left public life. He had spent decades in the Secret Service. And, you know, people think of the Secret Service as, you know, these um, grim looking, burly guys with aviator glasses on who are whispering into their sleeves and they're bodying, the, they're shadowing the president. But the Secret Service is also the leading, one of the leading agencies in fighting cybercrime. And Nagel, through, I think for, for like 10 years, was completely focused on cybercrime. He helped set up the various divisions, um, working with the FBI, working with US intelligence agencies that would have been on the front lines of trying to take down WikiLeaks when WikiLeaks came online in 2010. So Nagel in 2008, he quits and he becomes the director of global security for Sheldon Adelson. Um, you know, this, these sorts of collaborations with the CIA start taking place with Las Vegas Sands. I mean, who would be perfectly positioned to uh, make those collaborations possible? Who was uh, actually awarded with the CIA Medal of Distinction for his work in uh, collaborating with intelligence agencies like the CIA. It was Brian Nagel, and he's right there working with Zohar Lahav, who recruited David Morales. So up until this point, you know, a lot of the reporting we've been seeing from the New York Times, for example, contains caveats where they say it's not clear what role American intelligence played or if there was any role. But I think it's fairly clear if you read my investigation, and I'm also, you know, quoting a lot of the testimony from former employees and a former business partner who say without any hesitation or qualification that UC Global was working on behalf of American intelligence. And how does this connect to what uh, the recent revelations about CrowdStrike um, in terms of Assange's role? I mean, I think that there's been such a campaign against Assange and they've turned him into this weirdo and, you know, the media presents him as this really like unsavory character. Um, so that even people who you would think would care just on like kind of basic liberal standard issue, liberal grounds don't seem to care. Um, and it's one of these gaslighting things, right? Where like he is being spied on. And then if he says that he's accused of being, you know, a conspiracy theorist, um, right. And people who quote that are accused of being conspiracy theorists. And then it seemed like he did go a little bit insane, understandably, um, living in the conditions in which he was living. But um, something that's lost in all of this and, and something that we now know more than ever because of these uh, released transcripts is that uh, really the the Russian hackers um, had nothing to do with with Glenn, uh, with WikiLeaks, and you know um, Assange himself has admitted that there probably were people who who did that from the Russian, you know, from the Russian government, but those weren't his sources. So this is kind of an interesting dovetailing of both of those stories. Yeah, no, that's a really good question, and I can't say for certain who provided the uh, DNC emails to Julian Assange. And I'm not going to even make an argument one way or the other. Um, I would even say, you know, it would be completely within uh, reason to believe that the Russian government would have done something like that. Uh, why would they have wanted Hillary Clinton, someone so hostile to them, to be right. president? And this would have been retaliation um, in almost an elegant form compared to a retaliation for what the U.S. had done to Russia which was to, you know, balkanize the country and attempt to surround it with NATO um, military bases. So, you know, that's possible. But here we have um, an investigation into who, um, who hacked the DNC email servers being carried out not by the FBI, but by a private contractor, which is sort of tied to the Democratic Party run by someone who's an MSNBC contributor and former FBI agent named Sean Henry. And we've been raising questions. Yasha Levine wrote a piece for The Baffler back in 2017, raising serious questions about CrowdStrike and their attribution. I've, I've been doing it then. Uh, you know, we were called lunatics. Um, but the servers had disappeared. 
um, that they, you know, they, they never produced the servers. They never provided receipts for their claim that Russia's uh, GRU hacked the DNC emails. And now that the Trump administration has managed to compel the release of these congressional transcripts, you have Sean Henry um, under oath testifying before Congress that he has no evidence that Russia hacked the DNC. So that doesn't mean Russia didn't do it. It just means that no one has any evidence and that CrowdStrike has essentially been kind of lying about their attribution. Right. I mean, it's funny. It's funny because these people will say anything in the, you know, on Twitter or in the New Yorker or on MSNBC, but when they get under oath, you know, you're, they're telling them they're singing a very different tune. Well, so I'm how does this connect they take to the rule of law seriously at all? So it also and you know, is, this, I agree with their assessment of MSNBC, but yeah, well, if this was a serious investigation, why wasn't Julian Assange interviewed? I know. So Matt Taibbi and I had Aaron Mate on, your colleague at the Gray Zone, um, about this. And I don't think I even realized that that Assange had not been interviewed, which makes no sense. If you really want to get to the bottom of this, why wouldn't you be interviewing the person? He requested to be interviewed, actually. Uh, he was in an embassy. It wasn't like he was hard to find. Right. <laughs> Has anyone seen Julian Assange? <laughs> yeah, he's in one of three rooms in London. So right. go yeah. get him. Have, uh, yeah. yeah. Have you seen anyone kind of acknowledge the importance of these revelations? Has anyone said anything remotely like, oh, I guess we didn't have evidence for a lot of the things that we were peddling or people just full steam ahead? I, I just, uh, you mean with, with my story or with CrowdStrike? Either one. Well, with, 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 with everything we do at the gray zone, I mean, we're, we're always certain that mainstream media won't pick up on it. Right. Uh, I mean, I don't know. It's like, even though they know it's true, they somehow compartmentalize or they just say the gray zone, we can't, we just can't trust it for some reason, right. even though it's just clearly true. Um, in this case, yeah, no, no remotely mainstream person has shared this story, commented on it. I mean, part of that has to do with just the generalized hatred of Assange and elite corporate media culture. Right. Um, but I mean, th we're talking about a gigantic attack on the First Amendment. We're talking about uh, violations of civil liberties, the shredding of the Constitution by Mike Pompeo and the Trump administration. And this all happened under the watch of the Trump administration. But this isn't something the resistance is interested in. They're more interested in Pompeo firing a um, you know an inspector, which is is bad. I'm not. I mean, it's in kind of an authoritarian move, but took place here, I'll give you another example of something that took place. The apparent CIA contractor's CEO, David Morales from UC Global, proposed robbing Baltasar Garcon's office, the office of this you know, eminent Spanish lawyer who was representing Julian Assange. Two weeks after he proposed that to his employees, three men wearing hoods broke into Baltasar Garcon's office rifled through uh, files. It's not clear what was taken. They took no belongings. And this was reported in mainstream Spanish media. So, I mean, you put two and two together. Yeah. It, I mean, Pompeo bragged about all of this. He went to uh, Texas A&M last year and gave a speech before the students. And he said, hey, I was CIA director. We lied. We cheated. We stole. Yeah. We had a whole training course on that. <laughs> and then he said and, it and, really speaks to the marvel of the American experiment or something like that. Yeah. And the students are all laughing and then they cheer. They break into applause. So that's the culture we're dealing with here. Um, it's very hard to get any traction with these stories, no matter how bonkers they are and how, I mean, really upsetting. Why they does are, but the, Oh, sorry. I cut you yeah. off. No, go ahead. Why does Pompeo hate Assange so much? Like, it's funny because we think of the Democrats as being so anti-Assange. And obviously, there's overlap between the Dems and the Republicans, especially when it comes to um, foreign policy. Um, though, of course, the resistance never focuses on that. Somehow, the resistance is always focused on Trump being too soft on Putin or Trump being Putin being Putin's boyfriend. Um, the hawkishness is never a problem for them. But why... Does Pompeo hate uh, Assange so much? Mike Pompeo is a right-wing national security hardliner who is a former army officer, West Point graduate. And that's just the way those guys sure, think. That's right. the way 
Spooks think, you know, he wanted the CIA wanted Assange. It's like how the FBI wanted Leonard Peltier, but but even stronger. And uh, when Mike Pompeo came in, he's like, I'm going to give them this. Um, you know, his speech that he delivered at the uh, Center for Strategic and International Studies, which was completely focused on Julian Assange, starts off um, with this bizarre diatribe against Philip Agee. Um, for those who don't know, Philip Agee was a former CIA officer who became a whistleblower. He was one of the first whistleblowers. And I think he was the first CIA whistleblower. Just was sick of being involved and having knowledge of you know assassination plots around the globe and coup attempts and just violently undemocratic activity. So he took all these files and handed them off to leftist publishers, anti-imperialist publishers. There was a magazine called Counter Spy, which AG helped oversee that produced articles out of all of these files and just showed what a criminal operation the CIA was running. And AG was a wanted man, so he found sanctuary in Cuba. Um, I don't even think – I really doubt Mike Pompeo knew who Philip AG was. Um, right. And he, he, but the way he speaks in that speech, it's like he's obsessed with, he hates Philip Agee's like, and then he starts ranting about the little Philip Agee's and it's Assange and he speaks about Assange with such vitriol. It's worth reading the speech. But then when you listen to him deliver it, it's kind of like, he's kind of going through the motions, but he's also himself willing to serve as the kind of face and voice of the most hardline national security elements um, he's kind of like a, you know, much less intelligent John Bolton, or like sort of, you know, less of an evil genius. Right. Although Bolton isn't so bright. I think he ate John Bolton. What did you say? But I think he may have eaten John Bolton. Yeah. I'm That's not where sure. Bolton's been. Um, and uh, and what do you have any idea what Trump's thoughts? I mean, not to do the Trump psychoanalysis thing, but do we know anything about Trump's position on Assange? Given I'm that. working on a piece that will hopefully – I mean, I'm just starting it and I have some idea about how Trump um, kind of went – did a 180 on Assange because remember in 2016, he was always like, thank you, WikiLeaks. Yeah, yeah exactly. He's I like, they should, they should release – what did he say that – I mean, one of the things people accuse him of is is because he encouraged Russia to hack. It was so obviously a sarcastic I comment. know. What did he say though? It's funny. He's like, Russia, are you listening? Something yeah. like that. Uh, Russia, if you're listening, uh, you know, go for it. Yeah. <laughs> that at that moment, Donald yeah. Trump sent the signal to Russia to execute the campaign, right. and Putin in his computer cave pushed a button that hacked all the files well, of Mira Tandon. You, you know, it's this out like a couple years ago when I interviewed you, and I can't believe that no one talks about this, which is that Podesta wasn't even hacked; he was fished. Right. Right. Can you talk about this, please? Talk about, to quote Amy Goodman, yeah. Talk about <laughs> Afghanistan. Fishing. Talk about fishing. Afghanistan and, about and Idlib. Fishing. What? Uh, anyway, she called Idlib in Syria. Idlib. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, you <laughs> don't have to make up uh, Well, fishing, basically, you know, if you're going to get your emails, quote unquote, hacked, if you're watching this right now, and you probably all already know this um, because you're not like a baby, a boomer, but someone sends you a link to something or they trick you. They basically trick you into giving your password up and they say, you know, I'm from Bank of America or I'm from Yahoo and your password has expired. Please uh, provide it. And so that's what someone did to Podesta. And then he wrote the, uh, you know, director of Hillary Clinton's, uh, it was either the DNC or it was the DNC's, um, you Cyber. know, cybersecurity yeah. team and said, should I answer this? And they, the best part, they wrote back, you absolutely should. And so he writes, my password is password one. God. Uh, that was his password. And they said, and you absolutely should. They just left off the knot. Right. And then the excuse of the poor security director is I just left out the, the word not. If I hadn't, if I had just included the word not, then America would be safe and Hillary Clinton would be president. Maybe true. Yeah, potentially. I mean, I don't think these emails swung the election, but that's their theory. We did learn what a corrupt, just heinously corrupt uh, kind of 
you know, hovercraft Davos elite John Podesta was. Right. And uh, Julian Assange published it, and every Democrat hates him and wants him roasted now. So what needs to take place on the left, to the extent that we have a left in the U.S., is the same thing that took place on the right among people who supported Donald Trump and the kind of make America great sensibility, which is to see and identify the entire corporate media as a fake news media that is the enemy of the people. And that doesn't mean targeting journalists by like, you know, going and screaming at them and like just being extremely hostile and targeting all journalists. It's about targeting the apparatus with scrutiny and demanding accountability. But the problem is on the on what passes for the left in the US, you have all these people who have like jobs that left journals and they're fantasizing about having columns at the Guardian and the New York Times, or they often have those columns themselves. So it's impossible for them to even uh, absorb or internalize that kind of perspective. And then, you know, that translates into the Bernie campaign, which is just being assaulted by that corporate media apparatus, but refuses to really make the center of their narrative about taking on the media. And that's where Trump has been successful. He says, I'm not taking on Joe Biden. I'm taking on the media and you know the radical left and whatever else he said. But, he, yeah. but uh, there won't be accountability for Russiagate. We can be sure of that. Um, I can't, I just can't imagine that within, within me, within mainstream media. And because of that, I wouldn't call it China gate, but this, the new cold war against China is being played out through, um, largely right now, an information war along with an economic war. And the information war is what people on what passes for the left in the U S are, um, increasing, incredibly susceptible to. I mean, going back really quickly to what you said about the Bernie campaign and the media stuff, I think that that was one of the most frustrating liberal talking points, which is that the conflation of the right and the left critique of the media or the establishment, it was like the most either disingenuous or stupid analysis that I've heard. The idea that like critiquing the media is Trumpian. Like, right. I guess right. Chomsky was Trumpian before it was cool. They did that to Jeremy Corbyn, too. You know, in 2017, he nearly won national elections and defied all the expectations of the media. It was before he started, you know, taking this very confused stance on Brexit. But uh, he, he mocked the media in his speech before all of the labor delegates. And the next day was in The Guardian, you know, Jonathan Friedland and all of these uh, neoliberals. Jeremy Corbyn outlined a Trumpian attack on the media. He sounds like Trump. He's a, he's attacking journalists. And it should have been even a, a more blistering incendiary attack. I mean, why did Jeremy Corbyn decide after The Guardian was smearing him again and again as an anti-Semite, they just were running an op on him. He submitted op-eds op to them. Right. That's where he chose to explain himself. He should have, you know, had his own media ecosystem. <laughs> It would have been better and probably, you know, he would have received the same amount of traffic. Right. But uh, there are plenty of uh, left publications in the UK that exist to support Jeremy Corbyn, like the Canary, for example. You know, they get a huge amount of traffic because they're, uh, they're, they're speaking to people. They're filling a void. We saw the same thing with Bernie in a lot of ways, whereas Trump sort of was, I mean, of course, he's a Republican and corporate media, at least the wing of corporate media will always support some crazy Republican because he's going to cut a trillion dollars in taxes for the rich. But he, he, did, he does a really masterful job of catering to his own media ecosystem and also creating media events. But my point earlier was just that there are a lot of the influencers around the Bernie campaign People who are, you know, supposed to be influencers in the media uh, are also, you know, opportunists who are hyper ambitious, and their greatest dream is to write a column for one of these publications that's been smearing Corbin, smearing Bernie, and pushing all of the kind of like intelligence and propaganda fabrications that are used to basically suffocate anything outside of centrist politics. My favorite was watching someone on CNN being like, when Bernie suggested that Jeff Bezos owning the Washington Post had anything to do with their negative coverage of him, 
that was such a conspiracy theory that Marty Baron himself said it was a conspiracy theory. Like, oh, the publisher <laughs> of the that. Washington Post himself thought it was a conspiracy theory? Like, And when you're going against such a standard like the Washington Post, which has come out and said from Marty Baron himself <laughs> that you are perpetuating a conspiracy that sounds just like the president of the United States. That's not even like remotely uh, a talking point. Right. I mean, you know, Bernie could have, you know, should have doubled down, but he kind of backed away. I mean, he didn't apologize. Then there was the phony, uh, you know, intelligence community finds that Russia wants Bernie to win and is helping him through various means, which we can't explain right now. Uh, And Bernie gets grilled about it on the tarmac. It's like he gets out of the plane and people are like, what do you have to say about this urgent development, which threatens our national security that, you know, this, um, uh, Jewish cosmopolitan is is a Russian Trojan horse, no. ma- me- meaning you. And he, he's like, I'm against Putin, and he does his whole thing. And uh, Putin's a very bad guy, and you know I'm going to throw him in a throw him in a democratic pro democracy gulag or whatever. The DSA reading group, Mr. Putin, you will not interfere in our elections. And then at the end, he finally, as he walks away, he starts pushing back. How did you think it came out now? If you had the briefing a month ago, well, I'll let you guess about one day before the Iowa the. Uh, Nevada caucus. Why do you think it came out? And he's like, who ran with that story? It was the Washington Post. Good friends. Of course, the Washington Post. Yeah, of course. So, you know, why not just lead with that instead of telling people how bad Putin right. is? And it just continued like that again and again. If you want to win outside of, you know, the center left or the center right, you have to take on the media and you just have to be shameless about it and unafraid. And pitch stories to the gray zone. Yeah. Or the Katie Halper show true. or Useful Idiots or Pushback. That's well, the show in the gray zone. I mean, you know, it sounds funny and it is, it is funny. It's kind of ridiculous. Like, you know, that we're in so many ways, like what there is out there as a sort of left media ecosystem. But if you consider the way that Trump electrified the far right in 2016 or Jeremy Corbyn electrified the British left um, and Trump did a much better job of really playing on it, it could really uh, supercharge this kind of organic media system we've set up to have a real candidate who was authentically uh, dissident-minded. I mean, I don't know what other term to use. I don't want to say socialist, but really someone who really is against the system and understands that this is a fake democracy. We can see AOC being precisely not that person. It's just very clear what she wants and what she aims to be. She wants to work within the system, help provide it with a kind of a woke uh, sheen. She helps kind of burnish the system in a lot of ways and reap some rewards. And she gets to have, um, you know, some performative denunciations of it at the, at the same time, but within certain set parameters and guidelines. It's like you just don't step outside of these parameters and start denouncing regime change in Venezuela. Stick to inequality. That's something that doesn't really rock the boat too much. And in any case, Nancy Pelosi's in charge. And you support you supported her for leadership. Mama Bear. Mama Bear. Well, she just called Trump morbidly obese. She so, did? Yeah. On Anderson Cooper, she called him morbidly obese and said, Why is he taking a hydro what is it? Hydrochloro Yeah. Boxing or whatever it's called. He's our president, and I would rather he not be taking something that has not been approved uh, by the scientists, especially in his age group and in his, shall we say, weight group. What is morbidly obese? They say. I cannot wait for the tr- the woke Trump supporters who will definitely accuse her of body shaming. Yeah, I think Trump will just come back and mock her looks. Oh, I don't, I don't respond to her. I think she's a waste of time. These people are sick. Pelosi is a sick woman. She's got a lot of problems, a lot of mental problems. We're dealing with people that have to get their act together. You know, why is Trump taking this drug? Why? Because he has coronavirus. Right. I mean, and he got it from Jared Kushner. Ugh. Jared Kushner looks like he had coronavirus before anyone else had it. Yeah, he he's sort of like the, the the host, the original host. The host. Right? <laughs> yeah. He really does look always, unwell. He always looks like he's constipated. He, he rarely looks, talks. He looks like a wax museum version of himself. Yeah. He looks like he's made of wax. It's like um a portrait of Dorian Gray as a bar mitzvah boy. 
Yeah. And of course, we never talk about this, except um, Aaron Mate talks about this, obviously, but how, you know, Russia Gate should be called Israel Gate. Like the one thing that the actual thing that was discussed between Flynn and um, the ambassador, right, was they were trying to get them to vote, they're trying to get Putin to vote against the um, resolution condemning Israeli settlements. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's so many Israel Gate elements, and uh, many of the Russian oligarchs who we hear about actually had citizenship in Israel and were often like um, pro-Israel billionaires as well. But um, Obamagate is real. Uh, I saw Dan Rather say after this phony like commencement ceremony, which was basically Obama Obama's coming out party, so he can be part of the campaign and be a proxy for Joe Biden and. Um, you know, Dan rather said, you know, it seems like Obamagate is just about Obama being a, um, affable, highly intelligent, um, nice young man. Who's just a great American and not about anything else. And it's like, no, actually the Obama administration did participate in a surveillance campaign against an incoming president in order to help gin up a phony intelligence scandal called Russiagate. And part of that was Michael Flynn being wiretapped by the NSA after being unmasked, apparently by Joe Biden. And, you know, Michael Flynn, he's a complete Yahoo. He's, 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 I mean, I, I, have, I have nothing positive to say about him. Um, but they wiretapped this phone call, then didn't tell the public what the content of the phone call was. If they had, if anyone had reported it, I mean, no one reported it. And then the transcript comes out of his indictment, or his indictment comes out, and we learn generally what the contents of the conversation were. And as you said, it was about Israel. Right. And it was Jared Kushner, who was a friend of Netanyahu, pushing Flynn to do this, to call Sergei Kislyak, the Russian ambassador, absurdly thinking that they would agree to do this, to uh, vote against a UN resolution condemning Israel for settlements. I mean, there's so many levels I know. of crazy to this. It's like the the the... the the tail is wagging the dog here. Israel through Jared Kushner is telling the U.S. what to do, and the U.S. is asking Russia to do it. And then it's all framed as collusion. And even after the indictment comes out, nobody reports that part. Right. We, so everybody still thinks oh, Flynn was doing stuff with the Russians. So, And the uh, Russians he, didn't comply. Of course not. They would never comply to something like that because their policy is to support a two-state solution, and they don't have like APAC like – you know, with its their like hand up the ass of the president, right? So, APAC um, proctology. Yeah, it feel, maybe you know it feels good for Trump. I don't know. For it's every like, American president, it's getting a prostate massage right. from APAC. Yeah, but uh, RussiaGate has really come back to haunt the Democrats through Obamagate and it can't just be dismissed as Obama being hated or, you know, Trump just hating Obama because he is of, uh, he's black or of Muslim heritage. I mean, Kenyan I'm sure that's heritage. part of it of Kenyan heritage. I'm sure that's part of it, right. but you know, this is about the Republicans being very opportunistic and taking a great opportunity to expose something that Democrats did, which is just straight up wrong. I don't want, administration spying on one another and using the FBI to do it. I don't want the FBI spying on politicians. I don't care who the politicians are. So we're just going to be hearing about this for a while. And it's not something that can be easily dismissed. I And, and to your point about people being gaslighted as conspiracy theorists, I remember when Stefan Halper was exposed as an FBI and CIA spy. This is a CIA asset who is an FBI spy who was planted inside the Trump campaign in 2016 in order to do what was also done to Michael Flynn, which is to basically entrap um, various Trump advisors into saying things that could be painted as Russian collusion. And when this was exposed, CNN, not Trump, that this kind of thing is taking place, that the FBI is spying on a president. Trump always said, I'm being wiretapped. And it was always dismissed. I, the same thing would have happened to Bernie if he'd somehow been elected miraculously. Yeah. I, I think that like, I really would rather not have to be defending Michael Flynn. Like this shouldn't be an issue. 
Like every single liberal should just think that that's wrong and we shouldn't have to be wasting our time talking about this. Um, I don't obviously defend him ideologically, but it is a little embarrassing that this is not like a fringe position to think that or, or thinking that the FBI shouldn't entrap people. Um, so there's just like very few people I see outside of Trump world who are willing to say that this is wrong. And it just shows how demented our political culture is. Yeah. Um, and just one last point about Flynn before I have to – I really have to go. Um, Jimmy Dore actually asked me this question and I feel like uh, I didn't do justice to it. Um, but he asked what role Syria played in the targeting of Michael Flynn. And I said, you know, I think Flynn was just uh, the weakest link because he was so reckless. I mean, and it was reckless for him to be speaking to Kislyak, the Russian ambassador, while he was abroad. I think he was in the Cayman Islands. It's probably half past after half past cocktail yeah, hour. He was, he was drunk, right? He was drunk, idiot. But uh, Flynn was the, um, you know, in the Obama administration, and he oversaw the Defense Intelligence Agency, which is in charge of producing, you know, intelligence assessments for the defense secretary and using military intelligence on the ground. In 2012, Flynn produced a very uh, prophetic, I mean, I don't think Flynn had any role in it. He just, you know, he his analysts produced a prophetic assessment, which was suppressed uh, for three years, which warned that if the US continued to send billions of dollars of weapons and training to the so-called rebels in Syria, the so-called moderate rebels, um, they would basically create a weapons farm for extremist elements. And you would see the rise of, in the words of this document, a Salafist caliphate in northeastern Syria. Uh, sorry, a Salafist principality, which became, it, it, they foreshadowed ISIS's caliphate in northeastern Syria. It, it just happened just as this document predicted. It was revealed three years later by a not well-known blog uh, that had filed a FOIA request called the Levantine Report. And it became kind of a minor scandal. You know, the State Department was asked about it publicly. But then Flynn went out there and was giving quotes to Seymour Hersh about uh, how catastrophic the U.S. policy was in Syria. And he was slamming Obama for creating basically a gigantic national security threat. Uh, he was trashing all of Obama's advisors. And Susan Rice was involved in uh, un the request to unmask Flynn, along with uh, Biden and all of these other people who I, I think that there is a connection between Syria, Flynn's comments, and his targeting. They definitely didn't want him in. Do you remember Martha Raddatz and crying on election night? Do you remember Martha Raddatz crying on election night? No. It was kind of so. It was for the Republicans were all laughing about it, and Trump was laughing about it. She cried on uh, PBS, or no, she she was on uh, uh, with George Stephanopoulos. She was sitting right next to him, and yeah, and and the, the Republicans were taking such delight in her crying. Uh, but what was she crying about? It was that Flynn was going to be National Security Advisor. Um, it was specifically about Flynn. So I think there was a, a sort of ide ideological motivation behind the targeting as well as you know, the desire to just create a, a scandal to take Trump down and get him impeached. And last question, uh, if you can answer in 30 seconds, because it's kind of overwhelming. I know you have to go, but uh, Biden versus Trump foreign policy. All I'll say is that uh, Donald Trump, you know, has been rolled by the neocons and by the most draconian hardline national security elements. Um, to the extent that Biden wants to be a restorationist, bring back the Obama administration, that would mean renormalizing with Cuba. Um, it could mean some negotiation with Venezuela. It could mean uh, a new Iran deal, but I don't trust that take it to take place at all. I don't trust his advisors or the people around him. So, you know, it's a pretty terrible choice. Um, I think that one, something to think about um, with the Trump administration and how it has sort of warped 
politics is this kind of Trump derangement syndrome that liberals have obviously been infected with. I mean, it's like what you and, and Matt are just like, it gives you guys endless material on useful idiots. Um, but it's also, you know, created this atmosphere of trauma for everyone who isn't a supporter of Trump. They all are going to make the most conservative decision. It's what helped feed into Biden's uh, strange victory. Um, it's what turned people away from Bernie Sanders, even when they would have been inclined to support him or supported his policies. And it's been terrible for the left. Um, there's been, I mean, where are the social movements these days in the U.S.? Um, leaving aside the fact that there's a pandemic, um, there have been very few major protests under the Trump administration. And that's because this phony corporate Democrat resistance has been able to fold everything into its own um, initiatives. And, yeah, pink pussy hat, phony, like, um, get out the vote rallies. And everyone feels so traumatized that, you know, if you go out and, I mean, the, the anti-war rallies we've, we've held regularly because, you know, the endless wars haven't stopped, have been really sparsely attended. So I think you know, when, when you just, if, if, if Obama is any indication, the last two years of the Obama administration were a high point for social movements, leftist organizing in the US, not because of Obama, but despite Obama, because Obama's promises mm. had all been broken and people expected something of him. I don't know if they'll expect something of Biden, but they're going to expect something of a Democratic president and Biden will, I assume he'll fail to deliver. Um, and so it's important to kind of just think about the general atmosphere of Trump um, and how that influences the ability of people who are like in movement, movement organizing and activism uh, to operate. Because um, there's not, there's very little you can do to influence Trump. So right, so you are kind of making the argument that there is a potential to pressure Biden. I don't know if there's a there's any way to pressure Biden, but there is at least a way of mobilizing people uh, because of the failure of Biden. Because so many people, people who aren't you know reading the gray zone, people who aren't you know watching the Katie Halper show regularly, who might not have as much time to be you know absorbing so much digesting so much politics, but who expect something of the president, those people can actually be mobilized once they realize what a colossal failure it is. Biden's going to inherit the worst economy uh, probably since the 1930s. And I really just don't think they have it in them to do what's necessary, which would be even more expansive than a new deal. Um, so uh, as far as foreign policy, though, I mean, it's really like you're choosing lupus and cancer. Mm. Lupus, I mean, I Biden, guess, depending Biden on the kind of cancer. Just, anyone think of any war Biden was opposed to? I, I think he was sort of critical of the um, depends you know, which funding. depends when you ask Biden. Yeah, depends which minute. I mean, beyond that, I mean, we shouldn't even be talking about Biden because he's not really going to be there. Yeah, it's true. Right. So who's going to be there? Uh, whatever whoever whoever his foreign policy there's going to be this 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 battle for control of a biden administration he's going to be he's going to be gone he's going to be getting arrested trying to help trying to reach nelson mandela can you imagine being uh working for the biden campaign and having to cover for that <sighs> they didn't have to do much i know they I mean, did that should have been totally disqualifying but it yeah. was just kind of like oh he was no. separated from people at an airport. Lied. That's what happened. Well, Hillary Clinton said that she made this, uh, you know, elaborate emergency landing yeah. in uh, Pristina or something. Right. And, I mean, during the during the war in Bosnia, I mean, that was completely made up. Uh, and then Brian, Brian Williams, Williams is still there. There yeah. you go, Jinx, the dumbest person to ever set foot in an NBC MSNBC studio. The guy is uh, so dumb. Uh, there's a strong competition for that. I kind of think he's like way behind, though. It's almost endearing in the way he wears his glasses. He tries to dress up like a smart person. <laughs> yeah, it, you know, it's like when Sylvester Stallone got cosmetic glasses yeah. to make himself. Yeah. Actually, a very erudite. Actually, uh, Sheld uh, Sylvester Stallone wrote Rocky. So that's really? More than 
James ever did. Yeah, he wrote the script for it. Oh, so he's actually talented. Yeah, maybe uh, he just doesn't come off as intelligent. Brian Williams, he does. You think he's smart Him and he's saying, imagine if Brian Williams had a deep Southern accent. Right. He'd look like the idiot asshole that he is, you mean? Exactly. I don't want to be a snob. You, you know who's amazing watching him and Rick Wilson make fun of Bernie Sanders? It's like the most repulsive thing. He's like, Rick Wilson's like, Bernie's a ben- Bennington College professor. He's 102 years old. He's the most annoying voice, Rick Wilson. Rick Wilson, Rick Wilson was a um, protege of Lee Atwater, oh. who basically helped create you know, the kind of racist politics that Trump capitalized on. So thank you, Rick Wilson, for Donald Trump. Anyway, I got I really got to Okay, go, thank you so, so much, Max. Come back and tell right. people where they can find you. Um, uh, at the Gray Zone, on Twitter, Max Blumenthal. Well, I don't want them to actually find me. Right, I know. Well, I'll tell them where, what, what embassy they can find you in. No, uh, I'll tell them because I knew you have to run. And I'll a- answer The Grayzone.com. The Grayzone.com, gray okay. With, gray with a Y. And with an A, I mean. Gray. And a Y. Gray with a Y, not an, not an E. Not G-R-A-E. Not a hair club for men. Yeah. All right. All right. Thanks, Max. Thanks again so much for supporting the Katie Helper Show, for listening to the Katie Helper Show. And please do support the show at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show, even if it's only a dollar a month. So we can keep bringing you the show and making it accessible to all. 